Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. For the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. We've been seeing throughout this series on book one of the Psalms that when you see of David... You're supposed to hear this psalm in the voice of David. David is the one who is singing it to us. Now, what does that mean for Psalm 37? Where this is a, a wisdom psalm, where it, most of the psalms of David, you can see very easily, oh, this is the king speaking to his people. Yes, 
This is the king speaking to his people. Watch the first person singular. There's not much in this psalm, but it's in verse 25. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. And then in contrast, verse 35, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. David is singing to Israel and Israel is singing this song with David. Now, but to understand what's going on here, I need to back us up a little bit because a few weeks ago we saw there's a structure to this part of the Psalter. We saw in Psalm 33 that Psalm 33 has 22 verses. Now, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 33 is not an acrostic. It's what we call a quasi-acrostic. It has 22 verses. Now, Psalm 38 will also be a quasi-acrostic so with 22 verses. So that's the outer ring of, our, of what's going on here. The next step, Psalm 34 an actual acrostic, Psalm 37, an actual acrostic, each stands a beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. What that's doing is it's saying, pay attention to the connections between Psalm 34 and 37, because Psalm 37 actually quotes Psalm 34 a few times and is making this connection explicit. Well, so if you've got quasis and acrostics, then what's in the middle is going to be the center of the theme. And what did we see in Psalms 35 and 36? David, the servant of the Lord. The Davidic king is the servant of the Lord. Psalm 35 was a psalm of the cross, speaking of the Davidic king as the servant of the Lord. Psalm 36 even puts that in the title of David, the servant of the Lord. So Psalms 33 and 34 set us up with a statement of the underlying reality of who God is and what God has said Psalms 35 and 36 focused on David, the suffering servant of the Lord. Now, Psalms 37 and 38 are reminding us of what life is like in the midst of the kingdom. When the king is sitting on the throne, and yet things are not the way they should be, but they will be, and they are already beginning to be. God's word remains true. He is faithful. His steadfast love endures forever. Sometimes we don't see it yet. And so we need to trust in the Lord in the midst of those times when we don't see it yet. Psalm 37 is very much the Psalter's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, Jesus said. Where do you get that from? It's a quote from Psalm 37. Our New Testament lesson comes from Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. It could be fun to read the whole Sermon on the Mount because there are so many connections to uh, Psalm 37, but we'll just stick with Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus tells us, be anxious for nothing. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, all the necessities of life, all the things that you need, will be added to you, provided for you by God. Do we trust God? Or do we tend to fret and get anxious? Psalm 37 is very much... The, the message of the king for his people as to this is what life in my kingdom looks like. It's a song designed to teach and encourage you to trust in the Lord rather than get overheated about others. David is singing this song to Israel. King Jesus sings this song to us. He's describing his kingdom. He's describing not just the way things should be, but the way things are in him. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is what Jesus t tells his, his people about, this is the way my kingdom works. The kingdom of God is among you. This is my kingdom. This is the way my kingdom works. Even now, as I have begun, as Jesus has come to live with us, to dwell with us, and as he has given us his spirit, this is even now the way that Jesus' kingdom begins to work. And, and, the, and if you want, I mean, you think about, there's that line in the psalm that says, I have never seen the, the, the children of the righteous begging for bread. Yeah. Do you, want to li do you want to live in a world like that? Well, then live the way Psalm 37 says. Psalm 37 asks you and me, where is your heart? What is it that you delight in? Where is your allegiance set? Whose kingdom are you pursuing? The psalm opens... Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Uh, our anxiety oftentimes is caused, or at least occasioned, by others. Have to be careful about that whole causation. Is it was it other thing? Was it what people did that caused you to do it, or was it the occasion for you to do it? If it caused you to do it, then it's not really your fault. If it's the occasion, 
Oh. So that's where we have to be, we have to be careful. Other people, what other people did did not cause me to fret. If it caused me to fret, then there's nothing this almost... Then David's would be like, um, you're fretting because you can't help it. That's not what he says. He says, do not fret. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers. In other words, you have control over whether you fret or not. Don't let them be the occasion for it. They can't cause you to do it. So don't let them be the occasion for it. But when we see what others are doing, we often get anxious. Maybe, maybe you tend to fret over the, the direction our country is going. Maybe you tend to get anxious about how things are going at work. Do you ever get frustrated with your siblings or your friends? Or Well, David says, do not fret because of evildoers. Now, this word fret comes from a word meaning to heat up. So the picture here is somebody who's getting overheated about things going on around them because of the success of those who do wrong. And that language of overheating is actually important because in verse 2 he talks about they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. So don't you get overheated because if you get overheated, you'll tend to burn out. You'll tend to fade and wither. So don't get overheated. Don't worry. They're going to overheat because that's the path they're on. They will wither and fade like green plants in the summer heat. So there's, there's really two parts to this admonition. Don't fret about their success. Don't worry about the triumph of the wicked. They have no future. And also, don't envy them. Because the temptation can be, when you see other people succeeding when they do that, well then, maybe, maybe that's what I should do too. There's a temptation to say, oh, that's how I get ahead in life? Then I'll, then I'll be like them. Because David's talking about Life in the kingdom of God. Life with, with the people of God. And what do we do rather than fret? Well, if, if verses 1 and 2 provide the warning against fretting and envying, against getting anxious about the problems and troubles of everyday life, verses 3 and 4 provide the antidote, trust in the Lord and do good. Think of the hymn, trust and obey. It's, it's, it's trust in the Lord and just and do what is set before you. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. What is the antidote to worry and anxiety? Trust and delight. Not just any trust and delight, but trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. And notice how David says this. If you say that you trust in the Lord, but then you do evil that would demonstrate that you don't trust in the Lord. Rather, he says, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. The discussion in Sunday school about friendship really connects nicely to what David's saying here. It's, you know, it's like what Proverbs says in Proverbs 1 through 9 when the father's telling his son, sort of pursue wisdom, befriend wisdom, spend your life with wisdom. If you're going to befriend faithfulness, then you are going to be diligent in the practice of faithfulness. You will be faithful to your word and to those around you. And delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's such a beautiful way of saying it. And 
I know, I know. There, there are, there are those who have who have misused this to say, ah, delight yourself in the Lord, and and, and, and you can have whatever you want. Now, it's actually true. It's very true. If you truly delight yourself in the Lord, then you can have whatever it is that you want. Because what is it that you want when you're delighting yourself in the Lord? You want Him. And if you want Him, and if that's what your heart wants, then you can have whatever you want. Because what you want is Him. Now, the problem comes when we say, okay, so I'm going to delight myself in the Lord so I can get all these things over here. Well, that, that means that you're not really delighting in the Lord. You're delighting in all these things, and you're trying to use God like a magic box to try to say, oh, if I just do these things, then God will give me all the things I want over here. No, actually, David's saying, no, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart because your desire will be for him. And tr- trust me, That's way, way better than all those things over there. It's actually exactly the same thing Jesus says in Matthew 6, when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you because the way those things, what you thought you wanted, may not actually be all that good for you. And what he has for you is so much better, even though it may not feel better at the moment sometimes. Yeah. Why are we so tempted to embrace the patterns and practices of our age? Why are we so tempted to just look like our culture and act like everybody else around us? It's because we don't actually delight ourselves in God himself. And when we're not delighting in God it's entirely understandable why we become fearful and fretful and anxious. And so David urges us, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. Too often we want to vindicate ourselves and make everything right. And David says, no, trust in Him. Trust in the Lord. He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. We can get so focused on, okay, what do I do next? What do I do next? What do I do next? But if you think about it, if we are focused all the time on do, 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 we're focused on do, do. In Psalm 36, we saw David saying to us, don't just do something, stand there. Stand there and praise the Lord. Stand there and and." Give thanks to him and ask him to continue to do his promises. Because when you stand there before the Lord, when you are pursuing him with a whole heart, then when it's time for you to do something, it'll be clear and you'll be ready to do it because you'll be standing there seeking the Lord, pursuing him, delighting in him. And so the things you need to say and the things you need to do will become evident because you are standing there before the Lord, delighting in him, pursuing him, loving him. The the call of Psalm 37 is for us to delight ourselves in the Lord, to befriend faithfulness, to trust in the Lord and do good because you know that God will make all things right. 
Be still, verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Don't get overheated. Don't be anxious. He will, the Lord will make things right. So wait patiently for him. And then verse 8 particularly helps us see the, the danger of fretting, the danger of worry and anxiety, because the tendency is if you get all fretting, you know, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. When we get angry, when we, when we lose our temper and we get overheated, then that doesn't help anything. When your temper gets short, your, your fuse gets short, it, it's easy to lash out at others because we're overheated, we're fretting. And there's no good outcome down that path. It leads only, it tends only to evil. And, but then in contrast, in verse 9, the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Indeed, Jesus quotes verse 11 in the Sermon on the Mount, the meek shall inherit the land, the meek shall inherit the earth. And this theme of inheritance runs throughout Psalm 37. The word inherit is only used 11 times in the whole Psalter. And five of them, almost half, are in this one song. Because the Lord gives an inheritance to his children. Why should you trust in the Lord? Why should you delight in him? Because he has adopted you as his children and given you an inheritance with his son. If you are children of the Heavenly Father, then we should adopt the same mindset that his son had, as Paul says in Philippians 2, have this same mind in you that is yours in Christ Jesus. The meek, the humble, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Not the proud and arrogant, not the powerful and mighty, but the meek. Jesus was just teaching us Psalm 37 in new form in the Sermon on the Mount. Our second section in verses 12 to 20 then pursues the same themes onto a, a larger stage because, because verse 13 brings up his day, the day of the Lord. Judgment day is coming. Because yes, it's true. The wicked may prosper for now. And the wicked may prosper through exploiting the righteous, the innocent. You've often heard me caution against getting overly worried and anxious about our political situation. It's not because I'm a naive idealist who thinks, ah, everybody's just a decent person. No, I have no doubt that there are many who are truly plotting against the Church of Jesus Christ. It's probably far worse than any of us realize. So? Who is king? It's certainly nobody in Washington, D.C. Jesus is king. O Christ, our king, creator, Lord. Jesus is king. Oh, and, and also that whole thing about, and he's the creator. That means he also made this world. If he made this world, and he is the redeemer, and he is the king, then that means that he is going to win. Wait for the Lord. Be patient. Trust him. The reason why I urge you not to worry, and also not to resort to the methods of modern politics is because verses 14 and 15 are really clear about what happens to those who resort to the methods of modern politics. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. 
those who live by the sword shall die by the sword, uh, but not just somebody else's sword, their own sword. They will die by their own sword. Uh, Peter Craigie calls this the, the boomerang principle of God's judgment. The wicked draw the sword against the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright, but their sword shall enter their own heart. Or you could call it the wily e. coyote principle of justice. Think about all the Roadrunner cartoons. How often does the Roadrunner do anything to get vengeance against the coyote? I mean, coyote just keeps all his schemes, all his schemes. He's constantly trying to capture or kill the Roadrunner. And every time, his own plans blow up in his face. Roadrunner cartoons are expressing a divine principle of justice. The boomerang principle. Now, verses 16 and 17 then point out that now, very often in the middle of history, the righteous may only have a little and the wicked may have an abundance. Okay, but better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The abundance of the wicked will also prove to be an abundance of confusion, turmoil, and noise. And in the end... Their arms, their ability to gain wealth will be broken. What's, what's the purpose for which you're doing anything? Why are you trying to accumulate stuff? What's the inheritance that you desire? What's the heritage that matters? Well, that's where David turns in verses 18 to 20. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. Now, this section is talking about moving towards the final judgment, but it's important to see that David has a wider lens than that because the heritage of the blameless remains forever. It's not just that it will be forever, it's that it remains forever starting now. It will endure the final judgment because they are blameless now. Here in the middle of history, God's last day's verdict is pronounced. Really, This is what the doctrine of justification is all about. God says now, in the middle of history, what he will say at the final judgment at the end of history. And God's verdict is that he knows the the days. He knows the days of the blameless. Uh, Knowing means more than just being aware of. This knowledge includes an approval. God knows his people the way a, a husband knows his wife. Because the Lord knows them, therefore, they are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. When we face famine and lack, we are not put to shame. Sure, we face evil days. We face troubled times. Okay. Are we delighting ourselves in the Lord? In contrast, the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. So so what do we do with all this? Well, in the third section of of Psalm 37, in verses 21 to 31, the psalmist stops preaching and starts meddling. Up until now, we've probably been piously approving all of the psalmist's noble sentiments. Yes, we should delight in the Lord. Ah, those nasty, wicked people, they will all get what they deserve. But now, David says, the wicked borrows but does not pay back. 
but the righteous is generous and gives. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with borrowing. All of us have probably been in a situation of need where we needed to borrow something, but the wicked borrows and does not pay back. Now, you might think the contrast would be, ah, the righteous borrow and pay back. And that's undoubtedly true. But David goes a step further. The righteous is generous and gives. Now, think about the context here. The context we just talked about was a borrower who does not pay back. Jesus will do the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What is Jesus saying? What is David saying? Do we have this attitude towards giving to the needy? Proverbs nineteen seventeen says that he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. That when we give to the needy, when we give to the one in need, we are lending to the Lord. And it's not a question of, and do they pay back? Now, Proverbs will also warn against being surety for a fool. So God does not require that we lend to absolutely anyone, absolutely anything. But your default setting should be to lend to those in need. Now, it's also worth noting, that presumes that you have something to lend. And that's not true for everybody in the world. So the idea here is that those, that those who do have the ability to lend should lend to those in need and not worry about whether they ever get paid back. Again, think, caution, caution, pay attention to the other Proverbs that say don't be surety for a fool. <laughs> in other words, if, if your lending would result in your own family being sunk in a pit, don't do it. So this, you know, that's not, this is, when, when, when the Proverbs talk about this, when Jesus and David are talking about this, it's talking to people who have wealth. And by wealth, I mean something that they could, if, if it was gone, it would not destroy them. So just, just let's be clear. Neither Jesus nor David is saying, sort of sabotage your own family in order to help others. That's not what he's saying. But for those who have the means, David and Jesus are saying that to be generous and to give is what the righteous are like. This is what righteousness looks like. I mean, it's something we should pay attention to in that we shouldn't assume that the deacons will take care of every need. All of us should be looking for how we can help those around us not just in the church, but in daily life. I mean, if you want a good story, ask Wade and Eileen how their neighbors and their community in Bremen have helped them over the last you know, little while. I mean, just amazing stories of how the community came together. Just, not church people necessarily, but just anybody. Oh, hey, Wade's in trouble. Let's go help. Let's go. Just, it's exciting. You hear about these stories like, wow, people are looking for how they can help those in need. And that's where... If we're always keeping track of what we've loaned, what we've given, it's not helpful. I, mean, I, I long ago trained myself to forget when people said, oh, can I borrow? I'm just like, I have no idea because that's not, that, you know, generosity is at the heart of righteousness. Sometimes we can think of righteousness as a matter of strict justice, but generosity is not a matter of strict justice. Generosity starts leaning towards mercy, grace, undeserved favor. Your righteousness is revealed 
in your mercy. Your righteousness is revealed in your generosity. Your righteousness is revealed in how you give and do not think about what do I get in return. And notice the, 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 the result in verse 22. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. And that blessing is explained further in verses 23 and 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. When you delight yourself in the Lord, then the Lord establishes your steps. And even if you trip and fall, well, the Lord protects you. God has shown us this because he himself has done this because... Sure, there are times when the righteous is trodden down in the dust, but it never stays that way. This is what God showed us in the incarnation of the word, in the darkest hour of human history, when all the world seemed plunged in the depths of sin and misery. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God showed his righteousness, and his righteousness was expressed in the generosity, in the friendship of him taking upon himself our wrath and curse, our misery. Humility is the only path to glory. The meek will inherit the earth. And this is at the heart of what then David says in that strange comment, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Now, at first blush, you're like, wait a second. You haven't gotten out very far, have you? If... You think, isn't this what Job's friend said? You're suffering because of your sins, or maybe your parents' sins? But no. This is a psalm of David, a psalm of the king. It is our Lord Jesus who sings this song to us. And he sang it to us in the Sermon on the Mount when he described his kingdom. And for that matter, he sang it to us in Mark 10, verse 29, when he said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. As I've, as I've thought about this passage, I can't say that I've ever seen the children of the righteous begging for bread. Why? Because they have a new family in Jesus. The righteous are part of the family of God that takes care of one another. Why do the righteous not have to beg for bread? Because, well, they come to church and their brothers and sisters say, Oh, you're in need. How can we help? And so it's not... When the church of Jesus Christ lives the way Jesus called us to, then it's true that the righteous are not forsaken or his children begging for bread because God's people take care of one another. We look out to, for those in need and help them. Because the church of Jesus Christ should be characterized by verse 26. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. As long as I think of my stuff as my stuff, then I will tend to be selfish. But my heavenly father does not think that way about his stuff. He loaned his whole creation to us. Not that we've made such a great return on it. Or, to put it better, we've done some amazing things with God's stuff, but also some pretty wretched things. 
And so verse 27 calls us to turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. What David's calling us to think about is, how are we using our wealth? And part of the reason why I use the term wealth is because if we just say money, that's a very small part of our wealth. Your house is part of your wealth. Your car is part of your wealth. All that you have is part of your wealth. How are you using the things that God has given you in the service of Christ and how you just, in everyday life, it's not sort of finding some extra things to do, but just in the ordinary things of life. Well, our our final section in verses 32 to 40, then turn to the salvation of the righteous as we wait for the Lord. And initially, the, the focus is on this courtroom setting. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Now, the most obvious counterexample, like, wait a second, but isn't this exactly what happened to Jesus? Jesus was brought to trial, was condemned, and was put to death. So doesn't that disprove what David said? Well, the example of Jesus shows us how God fulfills his promise. Oh yes, Jesus was condemned by an earthly court, and he was abandoned to the power of death, but only for a time. Death could not hold him. It was impossible for death to hold him because he was innocent, and he was the one who had life in himself. And so wait for the Lord and keep his way. And he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. There will be a day when the wicked are cut off, when God will bring judgment against those who oppress and persecute the poor. Now, at the end of the psalm here, there's an interesting way that the singular and the plural play play out. Because there's a singular focus in verse 35 the wicked man, singular, spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he, singular, passed away and was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. And then the man of peace is identified in verse 37. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace, singular. The man of peace, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it switches to the plural, of the wicked in verse 38, transgressors, plural, shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked, plural, shall be cut off. And then there's the plural of the people of Jesus in verses 39 and 40. The salvation of the righteous, their stronghold, plural. It's only because of the man of peace that there is salvation for the righteous. There is a future for the man of peace, our Lord Jesus, who was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God. Therefore, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord because God vindicated the righteous one, because God vindicated the one righteous man. Therefore, all those who trust in him will not be put to shame. So trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let us pray. O Lord our God, have mercy on us, because we have fretted and been anxious too often. So help us to delight in you, 
and rejoice in your great love to us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen and help us by the, by the glorious power of the man of peace. For we pray in his name. Amen.